0: First Peter, chapter two and Philippians two. How many of you were here two weeks ago when we began uh, this text? This was uh, quite by accident, I feel like uh, not accident, but uh, I feel like the Lord is was directing us. Uh, interesting, again, in the midst of what for us would, you know, if you came from a huge church, you might look and go, oh, this is you a know, nice little church. But for us, this is a, a boom of a uh, New folks coming in. Interesting that along those same times that the Lord is, is speaking to us as a church about how to. Well, I'm going to call it winsome evangelism. Uh, I, I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. How many of you were like me and uh, pretty shy? Like uh, I had to get my brother to sell candy balls for uh, for band. Because I was the kind of guys like, oh, you don't want to buy a candy ball, do you? (laughs) But it's completely different. A cold call than having someone come to you and go, what is it that you got there? I'm interested in that. Can you tell me about it? The way that happens is through winsome evangelism. It all began. uh, First, Peter, chapter two, look at verse 12. It says Peter speaking. And by the way, if you're if you're new, He's speaking to a church that's being tremendously persecuted, like like you wouldn't believe. Uh, Some of these these folks are being uh, lit on fire, burned alive, uh, thrown to wild dogs, crazy stuff. He says, 1 Peter chapter 2, having your conduct honorable, that is beautiful, attractive, winsome. Having your conduct so honorable among the Gentiles, we would say unbelievers, that when... Not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The idea is, look, the world around you, your neighbors, um, those folks who you're trying to reach. Let your conduct and your conversation be so winsome that when, not if, but when they speak evil against you, homophobe, bigot, that their consciences cannot ratify those words, but rail against those words. Let your your conduct and your conversation be so winsome that you win some to Christ. Two weeks ago, how many again were here? We had an awesome time. Um, if you if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get the CD or go out on the web uh, ccotl.org. You can listen to it. It was one of the more fun times I've had uh, preaching. We answered the question, some of you remember, how do you win some Eustitians? That is, citizens of Eustace. How do you win some Mount Dorians? How do you win some Leesburgers? And then my all time favorite, somebody, I'm going to figure out who, yelled out, the village people! Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you win. Some Mount Dorians, Eustitians, Leesburgers, village people. Well, what we learned is you don't win them by complaining or rebelling against authority, even authority you don't agree with. You heard it said you don't conquer the darkness by punching at it or railing against it, but by turning on the light. We hit upon a theme that I think would be an awesome motto for 2010. What if we all said, as citizens of heaven, as ambassadors for Christ, the darker it gets, the brighter I want to shine. What if we said, because Jesus said we're salt and light. What if we said the more rotten it gets, the more salty, the more flavorful, preserving I want to be. The way that you win some citizens is to be the best citizens in Eustace, to be the best citizens in Mount Dora, to be the best village people. And real quick, as an overview of what we what we talked about last time, that means to submit to authority. That means to silence foolish and ignorant men, not by your clever words, but by your beautiful conduct. That means to remember that you're a slave of God. And uh, the last verse that we looked at two weeks ago was our SOP. Look at verse 17. Our standard operating procedure as Christians, this should be it. Honor all people, even sinners. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, only God. Fear only God, but honor the king. Okay? Those were the, the radical statements that Peter makes if you want to be a winsome citizen today. How to be a winsome servant? How to be a winsome slave? Because that's that's who Peter's writing to this morning. And believe it or not, the strategy is the same. How can you win some at your workplace? How can you win some in your civic group? How can you win some in your homeowners association? Believe it or not, it's possible. How can you win some bosses? How can you win some coworkers? How can you win some fellow servants? Or if you're a teenager here this morning, because this is an under authority kind of thing, how can you win some of your teachers? Or if you're homeschooled, how can you win some of your parents? Now, of course, this is especially going to be, I think, relevant to Those that are in the workplace. But as I got to looking at this, you know, I think it's awesome, radical calling to stay at home moms and retirees. I think everyone, if 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 you look at it, you'll see that we are all called to be winsome servants. And if you'll just do that, if you'll just be a winsome servant, people will come to you. What is it that you have there? What's going on? Why are you so different It'll be attractive winsome. And you'll, in fact, win some for Christ. So how to do it. The strategy, once again, is the same. And it starts with that same dirty word. Submission. There, I said it. Submission. Look at it. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. The word submissive there is hupotasso. We saw it last time in reference to those in authority in the government. But here he's saying, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Uh, It's a Greek military word. It means to arrange uh, troop divisions in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In non-military use, it was the voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. Peter says, If you want to win some for Christ, once again, it all starts with submission. Now, before we get too much further, I think it's really important to to point out. This is Peter that's talking about the power of submission. If you know anything about Peter, that should strike you right off the bat. You go through the Gospels, even as late as the book of Acts, and you hear Peter saying this phrase that he tends to say over and over again, this nasty habit that he has of saying this phrase. It's illogical. It's incongruent. It's an oxymoron. He says this. Not so, Lord. How do you say that? Lord means the one who decides it all, and I just do it. But Peter has this habit of saying, not so, Lord. You see it in the Gospels, Jesus says, right after Peter has this epiphany, this awesome moment. He says, you are the son of the living God. Yes. Awesome, Peter. And Jesus says, all right, here's the deal. I am going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. Peter says, not so, Lord. You look a little bit later. Jesus says to Peter, look, you'll deny me three times. Peter says, not so, Lord. Even as late as the book of Acts, Peter sees this vision God is providing a vision for him. It's, for lack of a better word, this uh, sack lunch dropped down in front of him. And God says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. There's all sorts of unclean animals in there. He says, not so, Lord. I'll never eat that stuff because I'm a good Jew. He has this habit, even his redeemed self, of saying, not so, Lord. No, I won't do that, master of all. See, it's oxymoronic emphasis on moronic (laughs) to say not so to the one who you've given your whole life to. So. I think it's important to realize that because here now, Peter, it hadn't really kicked in even in the book of Acts, but now Peter comes to the closer to the end of his life. He begins to understand, look, there's power in submission. Can I say it again? There is power in submission. Now, as a background, we, we learned it a couple weeks ago as well. Over half the Roman Empire were, were slaves. They, they estimate about 60 million people uh, um, through that land were slaves. So many of the, the Christians that Peter is addressing are slaves. And here he's, he addresses them specifically in these verses. Christianity was very, very attractive to the slave. It was the only thing, the only culture that elevated them, that gave them dignity. Think about this. If you're a slave in that society, all of the rest of the Roman Empire, to to them, you are a piece of property. You are just livestock. But someone came to you and said, look, to God... You were created in his his image. You're one of the ones that he sent his one and only son to die for. To redeem you. That is to purchase you. When you realize that and you look at Galatians 3.28, that was a radical statement. It says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. A radical concept. There was absolutely no other culture or religion that would make such a statement in that uh, proverbial soup. So. It was attractive to slaves, but probably some of you are ahead of me now. The legitimate question then becomes. Well, why didn't Christianity just abolish slavery from the get go? Why they just rise up and say, we're not going to have any of this. This is wrong. Well, two answers that I, I have. Number one, eventually it was Christianity that rose up and abolished slavery. If you if you are a student of history and you look back, and you see both in Europe and in America, the, the leaders of the abolitionist movement were committed Christians who understood who got it. But the second question you might be thinking, wouldn't blame you, is this. OK, then. But why did it take so long? And I feel like I had a a bit of an epiphany this week. Here's why I think. Because Christ's way, Jesus' way, takes longer because he changes things more thoroughly and not by way of subversion so much as submission. He changes things permanently, not by way of subversion, but of submission. And we see it in these verses. These verses, again, are penned by one who so often said, no, Lord. Now look at verse 18. He writes, servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Peter's on to something here the, the power of submission to win some for Christ. If you just extrapolate that out, if if every slave becomes winsome, right, every for our purposes, every employee becomes winsome. How will that change the face of society? Forsaking servants, be, be submissive to your masters with all fear. What does that look like now? Then in today's world, this is where it gets really practical and where my head starts to spin, because there are lots and lots of applications Um. I pray that that you have your mind engaged and you're like, how does this apply in my particular situation? See, many of you don't have, well, probably none of us have masters as far as in the sense that Peter is writing specifically. But you do have bosses, people who are over you. How many of you work for someone else? Okay. You can be blessed that you work at all, right? Here's a question directly to you. What is your conversation and your conduct like concerning your boss? Are you submissive? Are you lining up behind them? Are you being supportive? Are you helping shoulder the burden as as that definition is? See, in verse 12 through 17, we were called to be model citizens. Ambassadors for Christ. Uh citizens of heaven with temporary residents here on earth. Verse 12 through 17, we're called to be model citizens. citizens, guys. Here we are called to be model winsome servants. So that would mean employees. But I got to think, you know, if you're a teenager, that means be a model student. See, if you work for someone else, Do you realize that one of the very best ways to witness to your boss is to give him or her a good, solid, hard days, honest work? You get that? Just showing up on time and giving your best, not less than that, giving your best, not leaving early, just doing the things which would make you the model servant. Verse 18, servants, be submissive, it says to your masters. Then it says with all fear. That word means respect. Okay, so Peter has raised the bar even more. He's saying, look, it's not enough just to put in a a fair day's uh, work, but you also have to have the right attitude about it. Are you this is again where we go from preaching to meddling? That's what they pay me for. Are you one who grumbles about the boss? Maybe you're a super hard worker, but. When it comes time to talk bad about the guy, you're right in there with everyone else. Are you one who gossips in the office? Students in public school, do you make fun of the teacher? Students in homeschool, do you make fun of the teacher? You can thank me for that later. The point is, Christians should be the hardest working and the easiest to be around people. And especially in a underling authority relationship. What if each one of us became winsome, not only citizens, but servants in our workplace? What if we became winsome servants in our school or in our home? Now, there may be some of you that are thinking, "Okay, I hear you. I get it, the concept, but you don't understand my boss. He's a piece of work. Well, verse 18, unfortunately, does not support your case. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. The word harsh there is scolios. Interesting. Same place we get the word scoliosis. It means crooked, means perverse, unfair, surly. Some of you are thinking, oh, you have met my boss. (laughs) Again, what's the motto for evangelism that we've been talking about? The darker it gets, the brighter I want to shine. The more rotten this world gets, the saltier. That is the more flavorful I want to become. That's, that's the, the motto. That's the goal. That's how we're supposed to be thinking. And you say, but you don't understand. My boss, my supervisor, my teacher is the prince of darkness. Peter says... That's your chance to shine right there. Verse 19, he says, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. If you're taking notes, if you're taking an outline, write down the word commendable. You're going to have, I think it's four words that begin with C. The first one is commendable in the Greek. It's um, charis And listen, that's the word that you see all over the Bible. And it means grace. This is commendable. What, how do you define grace? It's like this. That which affords, listen, joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speech. Once again, Peter's describing the winsome servant. Do you hear it? He says, for this is winsome. This is commendable. This is a beautiful thing. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. See, again, if you were with us in, in verses uh, 12 and, and beyond, Peter has already told us this. He's already relayed this to us. And I think you guys would probably agree with this. You realize as a Christian, the world's not going to catch you when he breaks. You get that, right? Has Anybody else discovered that? OK. The world is not going to say to you, oh, bless your heart, you're a Christian. How can we make your life easier? It's not going to happen. No, the opposite. Peter even promises there in verse 12. He says, not when, not if uh, they are slander you, but when they slander you, when you're railed against, when you're called an evil, evildoer, it's let your whole life be the absolute opposite of that. So they go, this just doesn't make sense. There must be some other explanation. Oh, yeah, it's Jesus. See, Peter's saying, look, in that very moment when it's the darkest that's your spotlight. You have the spotlight. Be commendable. Be graceful. Be beautiful. Be winsome. And here's how. Verse 19 For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God. I love this. The, the definition for conscience in this particular case is just the consciousness of anything, the awareness of something. So he's saying, Look, this is a beautiful thing if because of your awareness. That God is up to something that that he's right there with you. If because of uh, conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. The word endures means to bear the weight up under and wrongfully means undeservedly. See the picture that uh, Peter's portraying here? A lot of peas there. He's saying, look, it's a beautiful thing when you're treated unfairly. If you use that as your opportunity to shine for Jesus. Think about this. Peter is speaking to these slaves and he's actually going to use the word beaten here in a little bit. He says slaves, it's a beautiful thing when you fully aware that God is up to something, bear quietly up under that beating that you don't deserve. And he's going to clarify. Look at verse 20. He says, Now, don't misunderstand me. Not every beating is glorifying to God. Verse 20. For what credit, that is glory, praise. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable. That is beautiful, winsome, attractive. This is commendable before God. Peter says, look. What's so winsome, what's so awesome, what's so shining or beautiful if you are beaten because you blew it and you take it patiently? Peter says, big deal. How does that win some to Christ? Let me give you some real practical examples. As a Christian, you show up late to work over and over again. And you are brought into the office, maybe even let go. Don't come to me and say, I was persecuted. Brother, I I know what it's like to be persecuted. I was late those seven times and they they can't be. No, because you're a lousy worker. Let me be even more meddling. Meddling. If you are, quote, witnessing when your boss is paying you to work, You are stealing from your boss. Do you see that? You are that is not winsome to your boss. Matter of fact, you might win some pink slips. See, if you are taking the time that you are being paid for and doing something other than what you're being paid to do, I'm not talking about your lunch breaks or however that works. But if you are stealing from the company, then your boss looks at you and goes, well, if this is what Jesus creates, I'm not interested. If Jesus creates lousy workers, I'm not interested. But look, middle of verse 20. But when you do good. That the word is agathos. Again, this whole text is filled with words that mean beautiful. It's awesome. Um. When you do good, that is to do something beautiful that profits another. When you do good and suffer, if you take that patiently, this is commendable. That is winsome, beautiful, graceful before God. Do you see what he's saying? Peter's saying, look, if you take a beating because of something you did wrong, okay, big deal. But if you take a beating for your faithfulness, your fruitfulness... If you take a beating, even though you're the best worker in the company, you're treated unfairly just because you love Jesus and you take it patiently. That is winsome, remarkable, commendable. And interesting to me that verse 20 begins, it says this is commendable and then it ends and says this is commendable before God. It might be a stretch, but I see that personally as Peter's saying, look, this is winsome. This is attractive to everybody in the room. Now, man is a little more obtuse, a little thicker. It's going to take man several times, lots and lots of times for them to see, Okay, I beat that guy down and he just took it. I beat that guy down. It wasn't right, but he just took it. It's going to take man a few times. But it says at the end, this is also commendable before God. Understand that God right away is there going awesome. You lived graciously. You lived that winsome life. You got beat down and you took it patiently. That is beautiful before God. So, first, if you want to win some co-workers, you want to win some bosses, want to win some fellow students, perhaps, or maybe your teachers, number one, be commendable. Be the best worker, the best student, the best underling, the best servant. And when your faithfulness and your fruitfulness is rewarded by a big old beat down, endure it patiently. That is winsome. It's commendable before God right away. And eventually you'll win some to Christ. But number two, here's your second word that begins with C. Remember your calling. Now I can already sense it a little bit in the room. The idea that, OK, I get this, I I get it conceptually, but it's not all that attractive to me. This message is not winsome to me because it means sacrifice. It means what? OK, so I'm the only guy in my workplace that's going to have to do this. Maybe because, look, maybe you're thinking, I, I like the sound of being winsome, but it's that whole suffering being treated unfairly. Taking it patiently part. That leaves me a bit unmoved. Well, look at verse 21. Christian, for to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You guys understand all of the, the passion and permanence that the word called brings to it? Let me give you an example. When I was trying to figure out if I was called to the ministry, everybody I asked who was in the ministry always had the same answer. Well, you're called if you can't stand the thought of not doing it. If you, it burns in you, if it's something that you just cannot not do, that's how you know you're called, right? Well, let me break that down for your purposes, because right here it says, Christian, you are called. A calling is not a career that you can choose or not choose. A calling is not a convenience for you to opt in and out of. A calling is a word filled with passion that speaks of destiny, of fulfilling that which you were meant to do, right? Here's the point. A calling there is no choice in. It's part of your fiber. It's part of your cords. That which you must do. You just know it. Peter says to every Christian throughout history and to everyone in this room. That whole living righteously and yet being treated unfairly and yet responding with patience. You are called to that. That's your calling. That's what you signed up for. I have sometimes a gift of being snarky. You know what snarky means? Lisa invented that word. Kind of a little sassy, maybe. This thought occurs to me, and it's a little bit snarky, but hopefully you get the the gist of it. I seem to remember Jesus. Making a statement, something like this. If you want to follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. As surely as he said that to Peter, the fisherman that he turned into an evangelist, he's saying it to you and to me. And you've heard me say this. I personally don't think things are necessarily going to get better before they get worse. I think he could be calling us to some sacrifices. As surely as he said that to that fisherman turned evangelist, he says it to you and me, and he's basically saying this, guys, look, I'm willing to make you fishers of men, but it's going to cost you. I'm willing to make you fishers of men, but it's going to cost you. As it did me. Verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Again, a calling is not just a hey, hey, you're invited. It's it's a an almost a a compelling say you've got to do this. And if you're going to do it, are you in or are you out? It's an invitation to follow. And it says because Christ also suffered for us. The path includes suffering, leaving us an example that you should follow his step. Look at that word example. I love this. It's the word hubogramos. It means a writing copy, including all the letters of the alphabet given to beginners as an aid in learning to draw them. You guys, we still have those today. You know what I'm talking about? Isaac, uh, my five year old, has uh, the, the three little lines, uh, dotted lines. And then there's a capital A that's in dotted lines and uh, Little a, right? How you learn to draw your letters is by tracing over that which has been dotted out for you. You see what he's saying? He said, Look, Christ has already spelled it out for you. And our job is to trace our lives over his example of submission. Of the power of submission. See, I get the sense that we're just... Elementary students here. That Jesus has already walked the the path of grace and suffering injustice and responding with more grace. And he's calling us to trace our lives over that pattern. It's the pattern of redemption that sometimes is risky, sometimes leads to ruin, but also always ends up in resurrection. I think if you were to trace out that pattern, you'd see the pattern of a cross. He says, verse 21, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. And he paraphrases Isaiah 53, 9. He says, because he committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. uh, Peter's saying, okay, follow with me here. Um, You're being called to follow in his footsteps. Remember that Peter was there. He was an eyewitness to the crucifixion. No doubt in my mind that Peter is now retracing the steps of Jesus on that day of his crucifixion for the benefit of these slaves who are suffering injustice. He says he he, who committed no sin nor was deceit found in his mouth. Go back with me now to Jesus the day of his his, uh, trial and crucifixion nor was deceit found in his mouth. That means by way of investigation. They were looking for ways. They were looking for things that they could legitimately accuse him of. You remember the Pharisees had grilled him relentlessly. They had tested him. They had tried to trap him with their conundrums. All they were like, "Okay, what about this scenario? What about this? Constantly looking for ways to trap him with his own words and they got nothing. It was amazing to to behold. But what did they do? Well, we got nothing, so let's lie. Let's just make something up. We'll, we'll buy out that guy, Judas. And they delivered him up to Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate investigated. And he ends up at the end going, I washed my hands of it. They investigated. They looked for something, some sin they could accuse him of, some deceit that could be found in his mouth. And they found nothing. And yet they said, crucify him. Talk about being punished for something you didn't do. Verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. The word revile there means to reproach, to rail at, to, to uh, heap abuse upon. It means to just lay into somebody, right? Again, don't you think Peter's remembering because he was there? Don't you think he's remembering like, after the beating. Th- there was the, the crown of thorns. There was the king's game. That's what they call it. That's where the guards would blindfold you. In Jesus' case, they, they blindfolded him. They, they pounded him with their fists and then they said, prophesy. Who hit you? Don't you think Peter's remembering all of the, the, the shouts and the taunts that they threw at, that they hurled at Jesus at the cross? He saved others, but he can't save himself. Hey, if you're really the son of God, come down off the cross. All this the while... The Lamb of God remained silent. And Peter says, following those steps. I got to thinking, sometimes I have these odd thoughts. If you've been around, you know that. You have ever thought about how much passion would leak out of the passion play? If Jesus had reacted the way you would. I mean, sure, it would be great Hollywood stuff, wouldn't it? Right. The Kings game, they, they have him blindfolded. They pound on him and they say, prophesy, which one of us hit you? He goes, oh, uh, that one <laughs> pile of ashes right there. I mean, there's something satisfying about that, right? That's that's Hollywood. Oh, yeah. But have you ever thought about that the moment that he did that? Redemption would leak out of the story. Jesus, who the Bible says is God with skin on. How wrong would it be if he was just like us, more interested in his rights than your redemption? It says who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Again, same deal. Imagine Jesus stumbling to the cross and he hears somebody hurl an insult at him and he goes, man, you guys are going to get it. See, that's the beauty, the power, the dignity of submission. And it was commendable in the sight of God. Jesus, with his, his face unrecognizable from the blows, his back torn up by these, the cat of nine tails, the, the, the thorns in his side, all of it, ugly and yet Beautiful commendable in the sight of God, winsome guys. That's the pattern that we are called to live our lives after. Verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. If you have a uh, keeping notes, your first see was to be commendable. Your second C was to realize this is a calling. But your third C would be this commit yourself to the righteous judge. It says, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously instead of committing murder, instead of responding in the way that you and I would, it says instead he committed himself to him who judges righteously. It'll make a lot more sense when you realize the word commit literally means to hand over to hand over. Now, that got me thinking another weird thought. If you think about this, this word throughout the Gospels. In in light of that definition, commit means to hand over. Well, look at verse 22 first. It says he committed no sin. They were looking for for him to hand them anything, any one little thing that they could accuse him. But he committed, he handed over no sin to them. But then you go back through the gospel story. And it says that Judas committed Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees, handed him over. And they, the Pharisees, committed Jesus over to Pilate. And Pilate committed Jesus over to Herod. And Herod said, I don't want him. I commit him back to you. Jesus was the proverbial hot potato in the hands of injustice. Till so finally, Pilate committed Jesus to the crowd, said, what do you want? I wash my hands of it. What do you want? And they said, for no good reason, crucify him. He was being committed all over the place. Anybody feel overcommitted? How do you stay calm in that situation? You look at Jesus and he's the Lamb of God in the midst of all of this. How in the world did he stay calm? Here's why. Because he had already committed himself into the hand of the righteous judge. You guys remember back in the garden the night before? Not my will, Father, but yours. I commit to you. Right. And then on the cross into your hands, I commit my spirit. Verse 23, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Here's your application. And and maybe this, again, is specific for you. Maybe in the workplace. You feel like you're constantly being attacked and it it really is commendable in some ways because you really haven't earned that kind of abuse that you're getting. Will you commit it to God? Meaning, hand it over and don't defend yourself. Don't come to your own rescue. Let God... Come to your rescue. It says that he did not defend himself. He did not need to threaten because his dad was the ultimate writer of wrongs. Now, some of you, again, perhaps this morning are are still not convinced. If you're a super cynic in the room. You're like, "Okay, I'll play here. If Jesus committed himself to the father. How well did that work out for him? And he was crucified. Left to, to cry upon the, the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're the super cynic and you say, how did that work out for him? I would say to you two things. Number one, that's the way he saved me. But number two, I I'd suggest you read Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. You can turn there if you want. Verses 5 through 11. It's, I think, pretty much my all-time favorite scripture. Listen, notice the descent of God, that is Jesus, with skin on. All the way down to, interesting, our title this morning is, To Be Winsome Servants. All the way down to death and then see what happens. Look at verse five. Let this mind be in in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Long way of saying he was equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And he goes lower, taking the form of a bond servant, slave and coming in the likeness of men from God to man is a pretty big step down. And being found in appearance as a man, he went further. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. But now watch verse nine. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it worked out okay for Jesus. The idea of submitting, trusting, putting all of it, every single egg in God's basket. Not defending yourself. There's your application, employees, students, servants, underlings. When you are treated unfairly, take it over their heads. Meaning directly to God. Hand it over to God. Trust yourself, commit yourself to him who judges righteously. And uh, you've heard me say it before. The only thing you need to be aware of is that God takes the long view of things. But it's the best and most thorough way to do it as well. Now, we're almost out of time, so let me move pretty quickly here. Um, the, The final word that begins with C you could write down conversion story. Look for the conversion story in your circumstances. Or maybe another way to put it would be look for the cycle to repeat that which God did in your life. He's trying to do in the peoples around you in their lives as well. See, Peter makes it personal in, in our last two verses. Look at verse 24 it says who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. I don't know if you're getting this. Peter's saying, uh, guys, that whole suffering and then responding uh, not in the way that you want to, but in the way that God would have you do, that whole thing is kind of your redemption story. Backed up. See, P- Peter points out to the suffering slave, to the suffering student, to the underappreciated underling. Uh, you owe your life to someone who submitted. To someone who took the most difficult path. You owe your, your life to the fact that he was willing to die. You owe your healing, it says, to the fact that he was willing to suffer those stripes. Verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer. Of your souls. See, what he's saying is, look, God did it with you. Couldn't he be doing it with that person that's that's uh, wicked and and crooked and unfair like you were? Look for the conversion story in the midst of it. See, verse 25, you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, for me. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. Sometimes I, I dig into the word and then I come to a place and I'm like, wait a second, that just seemed like a left turn. Like all this time I was tracking with him and then that seemed a little bit odd to, to go from the language of following in, in his footsteps and suffering and, and then he says, uh, "You were sheep like like sheep going straight, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Then it occurred to me, Jesus said, "I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep." Okay. It all is the same thing. Jesus saying, this is the way you win some. Lay it down. Submit. See, he's speaking to two audiences here. Hopefully, believers, you're getting it. You're tracing over the lines with me. We are called to follow his pattern to lay down our rights, our privileges, to commit our lives over to the righteous judge in order to win some. It's not enough, I wish it was, just to be the best servants, to be the best workers. But in fact, to when we are and we are uh, falsely accused to even respond, not just our actions, but our reactions. Wow, that's pretty high. It's a pretty high bar that he set. I'm going to share with you in the applications a way that if you're like, just can't do it. No way. If you're checking out, stay with me during the applications and I'll I'll share something I think will help. So there's that application. But there's always two audiences in every church. One is the believer. The other is the unbeliever. Actually, let me back up. Talk to the believer. one, One last thing. Sheep and shepherd. I guess my point is this. To the believer. If. You really are willing. To win some. Fellow. Eustaceans. Mount Dorians. Village people. You need to see. The same way that Jesus saw. When he looked at the mass. Masses and he went. Wow. There's a whole group of sheep. With no shepherd. No direction. Lost. They're just. They're hors for Wolves. If you're willing to see them that way, Jesus says, the way that I rescue sheep is by laying down my life. Are you willing to do that? Okay, that's for the believer. Here's for the unbeliever. Maybe you are that lost sheep. Do you see how much he loves you? The thing we celebrated a couple days ago, that Jesus would come, that he's God, but he came as a vulnerable baby so that he could be hurt, could be damaged. You see how much he loves you? He took his punishment, your punishment upon himself. He took the death penalty that you deserved, that you might live, it says, for righteousness there in verse 25 or verse 24. Maybe you've come today and you've given up on the idea that you ever could be righteous. Jesus has it. That's why he came, the good shepherd, willing to guide you and lead you every step of the way. But it also takes you being willing to lay down your life as you now know it. Say, "Okay, Lord, I'm a mess. Here it is. Here it is. Take it. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for the things that you are speaking to your church. Not only here, Lord, but across the country. People who believe in your word. And submit to it, Lord. Pray that you'd help us, Lord. Each one of us, uh, start with me, to be willing to lay down our rights, Lord. We ought to be able to. We already already ought to be in the habit of laying down our our rights to, for and to one another. But Lord, help us now, even when uh, in our workplace, Lord, in the places where we uh, feel like we should be treated uh, a certain way and with respect, and and we are. Do that, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be willing to to be radical in our attitude of submission and and to be winsome. Help us, Lord, uh, to hear what, what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church and to respond. Not to just hear it and file it away somewhere, but to live it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.